doubt, um, doubt is the struggle between uh, faith and unbelief. Doubt in Scripture is always experienced by a Christian or by a believer. Even the great ones doubt, right? Even the great ones doubt. And when you doubt, go to Christ. Go to His Word to discover the answers. Jesus gave uh, the disciples of John um, empirical and scriptural evidence to confirm who He is. And, and, and this should bring the assurance that we need as well to stop doubting that Christ is indeed the one who's come to take away our sins. When His disciples go away in verse 24... It says in, right in verse 24, John's messengers are gone. And, and we don't get to go back and see what John decides or how he resolves his doubt. We instead are focused on what Jesus has to say. And he turns to the crowd and begins to talk about John. Let's, let's read a little bit. Let's pick it up in verse 24 uh, where we left off this morning. So John's messengers had gone and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? Third time he asks the question. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send messengers, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon." The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Okay? So, it's a, it's a strange um, turn. We go from questioning whether or not Jesus is the Messiah to a pretty long discussion about John the Baptist. And a lot of people ask the question, well, why did Jesus do this? Why did he immediately start talking about John the Baptist to all those who had heard? Some people think that Jesus is trying to... Um, Jesus is trying to support John the Baptist. Okay, so it, it would be like um, all these people knew John the Baptist and probably respected John the Baptist. In fact, many of them, according to the passage, had already been baptized by him. So now his, some, they're, they're in the midst of this situation and they see some of John's disciples coming and John is questioning whether Jesus is truly the Messiah. And so some think that Jesus began talking about John to kind of save his reputation a little bit amongst the other people. That makes sense? Like, I, I'm going to try to, hey, John was a great prophet. He was my messenger. Don't, don't let his doubt uh, cast aspersions on the great person that he is. I don't buy that for one instance. I think what Jesus is doing is he's explaining who John is because the key to understanding Jesus is understanding John. The key to understanding Jesus is understanding John. And, and, the, and we can really say it this way. The key to understanding Jesus' message is the key to understanding John's message. And there's a secret, for me, there's a secret key that unlocks that whole lesson as we come kind of to the end of the message. And I'll, I'll give that to you in a little bit. He asks three times at the very beginning of the discussion, what did you go out to see? Verse 24, verse 25, and 26. So, so when the disciples leave, Jesus is basically saying, what was it about John that attracted you to him? What did you go out to see? 
Why did you make that long journey out into the desert to see this strange person? And then he makes a couple of suggestions. Did, what, and and, and you could, did you go out there to mock him? Did you go out there to learn from him? Did you go out there just to observe him? What caused you to go out to see him in his weird clothing? He gives two suggestions before he gives the answer. What did you go out to see? Question number one. A what? We're, let's study together. A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Now, that could be interpreted a couple of different ways. That's verse number 20, and the numbers are so small. Verse number 24. It can be interpreted as a very insignificant thing, just a, a stalk of a blade of grass, out, you know, very insignificant, shaken in the wind. The implication here is that did you go out to see a trivial and insignificant, meaningless person? Was that what, I mean, was that what, attracted you to John, that he was just this random reed out there shaking in the wind like you could see anywhere else? Was he an insignificant, insignificant person? No, you, people are attracted to significant people. But the second interpretation could be a weak and wavering person. You know, like you see a, you see a, a reed just kind of blowing in the wind who's very weak and, and waffling. And was John that type of person? No, he spoke, he was a stalwart for truth. I mean, this guy was blowing up people with his sermons. So, so the answer to this, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The answer is no. You didn't go out to see an insignificant person. Therefore, John has great significance. You didn't go out there to see a weak and wavering person. John has, John has strength and energy in what he has to say and meaning. So he wasn't insignificant, wasn't trivial. Otherwise, no one would have gone out to see him. So again, let me remind you, I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's expressing to the people that the message and person of John the Baptist is crucial to understanding the message and person of Jesus. He is not an insignificant person. He's a significant stalwart for truth. Question two, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Again, the interpretation can be interpreted two ways. Did you go out to see a finely dressed person? That would be worth the trip. Was John a finely dressed person? Of course not. Those type of people live where, Jesus says. Yeah, look at the, look at the verse. See, right? Those kind of people who dress in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. This guy wore camel skin, right? Was it camel skin? Is that the right? I said camel. It didn't sound right. Okay. He, he wore these weird clothes and ate locusts and honey and stuff. Uh, or did you go out to see someone who is the word soft there, this would be the second interpretation. A, a well-dressed person would be the first interpretation. Um, but those type of people aren't located in the desert. Or the second interpretation, did you go out to see someone who was timid and frail, a soft, a privileged, a self-indulged person, someone who has always known luxury in life? Right? Was that, what, what, was that the attraction? Answer? No. You didn't go out to see a trivial, insignificant person. You didn't go out to see a wealthy, uh, self-indulged person. So then he says, what then did you go out to see? Question three. What did you go out to see? A prophet. And doesn't Jesus ask it in the form of a question? Like he's playing Jeopardy right here? Yeah, he says in, in verse, I've, the numbers are so tiny and the light is so, uh, verse 26. What then did you go out to see? Question. A prophet? And then he answers his own question. Says, Yeah. He is a prophet, and I tell you, he's more than a prophet. So again, understanding John, Jesus says, is the key to understanding me. He is a prophet, 
And he's more than a prophet. He's more than just a normal, everyday prophet. He is my messenger, the passage goes on in 27. He is one who went before my, your face who will prepare your way before you. And because of this, there is no one who has been born of women that is greater than John. He is the one. He fulfills the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. He's a great person because he is the called out person who would go before the face of the Messiah. The man is great. John is great. Not because of something inherent within himself, right? He is great because of what he is saying on behalf of Christ. And he's not insignificant because what he's saying is very significant. He's not tied to this world in wealth and self-indulgence. He's looking to another world. So understanding John, who is this great person, just because he is connected to Christ, is the key to understanding the message of Jesus. As great as JTB is, I love this next little section. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The most recent, least, newest, youngest person that has entered the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Hey, John is this fantastic person. He has the significant message. He is the, he is the chosen forerunner of the Messiah, and he's boldly given that message, and it was attractive to all the people they went out in the wilderness to see. There's no one born of women greater than this guy. This guy had a privileged ministry. He's great because of his connection to me. Why are we greater? Yeah, the, con- the connection to Christ for us is far greater. We know the fullness of the gospel We see the reality of all the truth of Christ and we are not just merely a forerunner of His or connected to Him in a ministry way. We actually possess and own Him as our Savior and Lord, which makes us great. A person is only great because of their connection to Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. John is great because of his connection, but anyone who enters the kingdom has this high privilege of knowing Christ and belonging to Him. There is honor and greatness in being part of the family of God and being under His reign. There is protection and liberty and freedom and forgiveness and love and joy and all the rest that God has bestowed upon us. So how is this distinguished? And this is where I want to spend the majority of the time here. When He finishes this saying, there are two responses. Okay? When Jesus wraps this all up about John, hey, John is great because he was my messenger and understanding him is the key to understanding me. But if, and he was so great because of his ministry for me. But anyone who enters the kingdom is far greater than him. He stops talking. When all the people heard this, whatever verse it is, when all the people heard this, they have two responses. The tax collectors and the people do what? What does the passage tell us? Declare God just. God, you are right in this decision. This, this, is, the, this, is, this Christ, this Messiah is the right one. You have made the right call on this. And the reason they could say that is because they had been baptized by John. Now hold that in your thought. That's what the passage tells us, right? When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They say, God is right on this matter. Then you have the other individuals. You have Pharisees and lawyers who rejected the purpose of God for themselves And it mentions that they were not baptized by John. Isn't that interesting? 
That's the key that unlocks everything here. The people who had been baptized by John understood that God was right. The people that had not been baptized by John did not, and they rejected. That is the secret. Now, why is that the secret, verse 29 and 30? Why is that the secret? Like, was there something magical that happened in the waters that gave them this understanding of Jesus? And those that didn't go into the Jordan River, they couldn't understand it? But that is the dividing line. The people who were baptized by John said God is right, and they were believers. The people that weren't baptized by John they rejected it. Why is that the key? Anyone, anyone have a... Right, right. The, the, the baptism of John is different than believer's baptism. When we put people in this uh, tank, it's after they have become a believer in Christ. They've, they've already exercised faith and repentance. But in this special time for John, his baptism was a baptism, as you just said, of repentance. So anyone who submits to that baptism, anyone who is humble enough to go to John and say, I must be baptized, is admitting their own need and sin. Remember when Jesus came to be baptized of John? John knew what his baptism was, right? Why did he forbid Jesus to be baptized? Didn't have a need. No need. He didn't need to repent of anything. He had no sin. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to do this because I'm going to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do all the obligations that God has asked me to do, even if unnecessary. So he does it. And John understood that. And so Anyone coming to John and saying, I am willing to be baptized is exercising exactly what the Beatitudes say in Matthew 5 when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're acknowledging their bankruptcy before God and that their need is coming from, out their, what they need has to come outside of themselves. And they repent and ask for forgiveness. Those who do not undertake the baptism of John, these Pharisees and lawyers, they reject the purpose of God for themselves, the passage says, because they have spiritual pride and they are unwilling to admit that they have a spiritual need. They refuse to acknowledge that God's righteousness is also for them. And so by refusing the baptism, what they're saying is about themselves, I'm okay. See the two groups of people? The one group of people that submits themselves to the baptism of repentance say, I'm not okay. I'm messed up. I need forgiveness. And I'm going to undergo this repentance baptism because what I'm being taught is is that someone is coming that is going to forgive me of my sins. So I'm going to be prepared for that by repenting now. And then you have this other group of people that say, I'm not going to repent because I'm okay. And I don't need anything else. You have this group of people that says, I'm not okay. You have this group of people that says, I'm okay. So the key to understanding the message of Jesus is understanding the message of John. So everyone who understands the message of Jesus must say about themselves, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. That's a very, uh, that's that's not, not a very harsh way to say, I am a messed up sinner deserving of God's wrath. If you cannot ever stand in this position, you can never enter the kingdom of God. And many of the people in this passage didn't do that because they would not acknowledge through spiritual pride their own need. 
They were relying instead on their own merits, not the marriage, merits of Christ. And I think that's why Jesus brought up this discussion with uh, the people around after John's disciples left to let the people know that when you went out in the wilderness to seek that prophet, you were doing a good thing. That was the right thing to do. You weren't going out to do something insignificant or trivial or find a soft, self-indulged person. You, you did the right thing by seeking out that prophet because he was the forerunner announcing the need for repentance. And all who do that are accepted into the kingdom. That's the reason you're celebrating the communion service tonight is because you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ. Now, what does Jesus have to say to these people who reject? Let's finish this and go to the communion. Does that make sense? Did that make sense? I hope so. So in verse 31, what am I going to say about these people, Jesus says? He's got all these people who rejected him. And isn't this the way, I mean, people haven't changed. People haven't changed. Okay, Desi or other people that we've mentioned tonight that need salvation or, or people that we know in general or just, just the world in general. Um, when you approach people with the gospel, most people's evaluation of themselves is that they're a good person. And basically they're saying, I'm okay. Spiritual arrogance. Instead of admitting, which we all can easily do, that we are not okay, we're messed up, we're sinful. So the generations are the same. And so what does, Jesus, what does Jesus have to say about this generation that rejected him? What shall I say about them? I will liken them, he says, to children crying in the street. And then he gives this little nursery rhyme. This was actually this, it, it's indented in my Bible. It may be uh, in yours as well. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. It was like a little nursery rhyme that kids would call out to each other. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it would be similar to today, but children in that day would, would like to pretend, this is a little strange to think about, but when they would play, they would play wedding or they would play funeral. These are the types of celebrations they would see in their culture. And so they would play wedding and funeral. And, and for a wedding, what type, of, what type of singing was there, right? What, what type of words does it pass? Does it give us the specific words, right? Flute and, flute and dancing. We're supposed to have flute and dancing. And then in the funeral time, it's a dirge and weeping, Okay. And, and the children's phrase here was designed to shout to kids who never wanted to participate. This is so neat that Jesus has his finger on the culture. So you got these kids out there, hey, let's all play, it's a little weird, let's all play funeral, right? I get to be the dead person. And then you got little kid over here who doesn't want to do it, okay? Well, he, he doesn't want to play. Let's play wedding instead. Eh, I don't want to play, right? So the kids would then sing this little thing to all these non-participants, hey, I don't know if it went with a little song or what. It was like hickory dickory dock. Like we, we sang the flute for you and we want to dance. We played the dirge for you and you did not weep. Like you don't want to participate no matter what we do. That's what Jesus is saying about this generation. Look what he goes on to say. John came and boy, he was which guy? No, but which guy in the, in, the, in the little nursery rhyme? Which guy is John? He's the funeral guy. He's the funeral guy. Let's be somber and serious and fast. And, you know, he's, he's kind of the, 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 the one who's playing the dirge. And then Jesus comes and he's playing the flute. He's partying with sinners. Right, let's, let's read it. It's best for us to read it instead of me summarizing it. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. He's the dirge. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. 
You say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Right? In other words, when John came, you rejected him because he was somber, serious, and he fasted. When I came, you rejected me because I hung out with sinners and celebrated and partied. In other words, some people will not accept Jesus no matter what. No matter what. We talked about this morning, right? No matter if they see things or, or hear things or observe things, they still will not accept. The problem is not with the message. The problem is not with the messenger. The problem is with the human heart. Why do these people that you've, tr- you've prayed for and talked to for years about Christ, why do they not receive the gospel? Are you messing it up? Is there some problem inherent with you? Sometimes people will just not accept no matter what is offered, right? They complain about everything. I'm not going to go to that church because they pre- all they do is preach fire and brimstone. I don't want to go to a place where, where it's all serious there. They're legalistic there, you know? They're, they're just, they're all about, you know, they're kind of like, uh, they, they restrict themselves way too much. I don't want to be a part of that. And then they'll say about another church, well, they're, they're, just, they're just off the rails, man. They, they just, they have party too much. They're not serious enough, right? I mean, they, they don't care. It, it's not what the package is or what the message is. It's the problem with the heart. They don't want to accept it either way. And so it, Jesus, Jesus is basically saying, you're like the generation where the children are saying, We'll, offer, we'll do whatever it is you want. No, we don't want to have any part of it. That's what the culture is saying today. That's what Jesus is saying about the generation that is surrounding him. And it all points back to the spiritual pride. You can almost imagine, if you kind of imagine, if you've seen our Awana games in here when we have Grace kids and the kids are running around, it's like the kid over here who just doesn't want to play. And this, this is the posture, right? This is the posture. And so all the kids who want that person to play, come on, what, what game do you want to play? I don't care. I don't want to play anything. And it's kind of the picture of, if you think about the people playing the Iwana game, here's the people of Grace Baptist. We're all participating. We love Jesus. We're here to sing. We open the Word. We come to study. And you have these people, like we know, that are on the outside doing this. Say, hey, come on in. We want to introduce to Christ. Nah. You know, and you, and you package it in a different way. You say, hey, come to a Christmas program. Come to a Labor Day party. Right? You, we give the gospel at a funeral. All kinds of different situations. And they still sit over here and do this. And it points back to the spiritual pride. Why do those kids not want to play? Well, I don't want to get involved. I just, you're not doing what I want or whatever. That's, what, that's why people don't receive the gospel as well. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Okay? It is, they are revealing the stubbornness of their own hearts, which refuse to do what? We already talked about that. They refuse to repent. They refuse to admit that they're in this group of people who are not okay. And that's why the key to understanding Jesus is the key to understanding John and why this whole story is coming together for us here at the end. Now there's a conclusion in verse 35 and we've got we to gotta finish. Let, uh, lest we fall into too much despair about this, in verse 35 Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all her children. Another way of saying this is in Matthew, wisdom is vindicated by all her actions. Now what I believe this is talking about is spiritual wisdom, the wisdom of salvation. The wisdom of revelation. The wisdom of a person who admits that they are not okay. It's noted for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. This wisdom that you have exercised, it was wise of you to repent. The wisest thing you ever did was to repent of your sin. That wisdom will be vindicated. That wisdom will be justified. 
The idea here is this wisdom is vindicated by what it will produce. In spite of the rejection of the scribes and the Pharisees and the masses that rejected what Jesus had to say, in spite of the massive rejection of the gospel that people in this culture are still doing today, right? We have about 25 people here. I mean, what is the potential for a service like this? Thousands. Thousands. There's 25 people here. Even people who, who are connected to us and agree that they love the gospel and the Bible. But here's a handful of us. That wisdom is being vindicated by your actions. I believe that's what this is saying. Even though there's massive rejection out there, this, this teaching and this repentance and this wisdom still bears its fruit. Even after the resurrection, Jesus only had 120 disciples in the upper room. That seemed like a pretty small group. What this means, wisdom is justified by our children, as simply as I can say it, the gospel will produce results. These people who believe all the way back in verse number 23, they are blessed because they are not offended by Jesus. They don't stumble over that. Wisdom's children, right? Wisdom is justified by her children. Well, what is wisdom's children? Wisdom's children are believers whose lives live out the power that salvation brought to them. Right? When you repented, there, there are... There are traits now being brought out in your life that express that you really repented and express faith and trust in Christ. And now you are known by the deeds of righteousness. Which category do you fit in here? I think, I mean, I look out at everybody and based on my own um, evaluation, everybody in here has claimed to know Christ. I, I don't, Jessa hasn't trusted Christ yet, but um, and maybe there's some other children who haven't, but generally all of our adults in here have made a profession of faith. And so the joy for us is not to necessarily make a, a statement of, well, would you trust Christ tonight? Would you stop? The, if, I, if I was preaching this in the morning service, I would probably say, which group are you in, right? Are you in the group of people who declare God just, that this is the right way, or are you in the group of people who refuse to repent? I think most of us would be in that latter group. We have, we have repented of our sins, and, and we admit our failure, and we trust in the merit of Christ. So instead of saying, which group are you in, I'll say, aren't you thankful that Christ has brought about that repentance in your life so that you can come to a table like this and have deep meaning and, and deep tenderness and softness to the message of the cross, which brings about the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Let's pray, and then we'll move on to our celebration here together. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to our hearts tonight through your word. We thank you for um, the repentance that you granted to us. We could not produce that in ourselves. You gave us the ability to repent and uh, have called us to be a part of your family. And because of that, we are, we are seen as, as greater than even a fantastic prophet like John because of our wonderful and deep connection that we have to Christ. We're so humbled by your indwelling spirit, humbled by your, uh, by your love and presence in our lives. And uh, we thank you that you have called us from uh, stubbornness and rebellion to repentance and faith. And as we think about that tonight and we drink and eat of the Lord's Supper, I pray that our hearts would be full of joy um, for that truth. For none of us would have ever come to Christ apart from you first drawing us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's just sing one song. Uh, did you find that song or no? We'll, we'll sing one song uh, to prepare ourselves for communion tonight. Um, our lesson tonight was about repentance, and so there is still ongoing repentance that each of us need to make. And we'll just sing this song that we've learned. Uh, I think I left this on. Maybe I didn't. Uh, maybe we're not going to be able to sing that. Maybe because I left it off too long. It's not going to work. Um,